If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This podcast may contain explicit language, which is distinct from shall, and in point of fact, as to this specific episode you're about to hear, actually does not contain explicit language. It's Monday, July 11th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's still unclear how abortion law will settle in the wake of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. For now, it seems states are simply free to ban abortion starting from the moment sperm meets egg on through. But a woman in one of the country's strictest states has complicated the legal code. In Texas, you see, they like their guns in abundance, their abortion bans starting at six weeks, and their high occupancy vehicles just that, highly occupied. I bring up this dog's breakfast of legal facts to convey to you the story of Brandy Batone, Dallas motorist, as presented by NBC Channel 5 Dallas. When Brandy Batone was driving down Central Expressway, she came across a sheriff's checkpoint targeting drivers, breaking the rules. He starts peeking around. He's like, is it just you? And I said, no, there's two of us. And he's like, where's the other person? And I went right here. Batone pointed to her belly. And in a legal argument that would tie Samuel Alito in more knots than a 16th century English jurist Matthew Hale device for torturing witches, speaking of tortured, how about that analogy, but in a legal argument that would tie him in more knots than that, the law was confounded. Batone, you see, is 34 weeks pregnant, and now you know the rest of the story, well, kind of, but it was was a little Paul Harvey-esque, wasn't it? In one legal setting, this means that the occupant of her uterus is considered a person, but in another legal setting, the traffic code, Batone is riding solo. The legal implications are massive. If Batone and seven of her pregnant friends worked at the same company, would that company be required to provide health insurance? If Batone and a pregnant friend were to dine in a restaurant full of 96 people with a capacity of 100, Would that restaurant be in violation if the friend were carrying twins? If Patone and 12 pregnant friends were elected to the Texas Senate, would their presence, absent any other legislator, constitute a quorum? Can Patone use two coupons? Even if the fine print clearly says one coupon per customer, is Patone a they? As it stands now, or waddles, Batone is due in court to defend her $275 speeding ticket. She's also just plain due in a couple of weeks. She hopes to beat the rap. Given Texas's criminal justice system, I suggest a just as likely outcome 
is that her fetus is charged with accessory after the fact. On the show today, I spiel about the sentiment that Joe Biden is old, lacking energy, and has bad policies when it comes to abortion. None of these arguments are coming from the political party that actually opposes him, by the way. But first, actually, but first, but first, an update since the end of last week. On Friday, I mentioned the Reddit page, Reddit slash the gist. Go there. We'll discuss things. I forgot to mention Apple podcast reviews. They're great and they're helpful. Do they help listeners find the podcast? I don't know. You listen to podcasts. Has a review ever helped you find another podcast? Anyway, I like them. They're another salon of discussion. But mainly, and the reason I wanted to do a but first, but first, on Thursday, I talked about the $3 million donated to a two-year-old orphaned in the Highland Park shooting. Horrible. I used it as a chance to talk about another orphan, a young girl from Baltimore named Kaylee Washington. If you listen to that spiel on Thursday, it was $3 million to Aiden McCarthy and $305 for Kaylee. Her aunt put up a GoFundMe, and that's what it raised since Vernell Rogers, Kaylee's aunt, became Kaylee's guardian. Well, guess what? If you check the GoFundMe page now, you'll find that the $305 is outdated. As of this recording, you all who heard the segment decided to go to the page and donate a collective. Well, now it's approaching and maybe even has surpassed $12,000. Vernell Rogers, with whom I'm in contact, is thrilled, overjoyed, already thinking about all the services and necessities Kaylee hasn't been able to get. Thank you all. So, the real but first. But first, inflation is all around us. The problem is, it would be nice to have a credentialed, respected economist to really talk about the causes of inflation and what could uncause it, because so much inflation is caused by, well, chatter about inflation. But guess what? I have such an economist. He is quite credentialed. He's maybe even revered. Up next, some exciting macroeconomics talk with Harvard's David Labson. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Economics are always important, but the macroeconomic conditions of the world and the nation are weighing on us as voters, as people. And I wanted to connect the macro with the micro with David Lapson, who is the Robert I. Goldman Professor of Economics and a Dean of Lowell House at Harvard University. He also leads Harvard's Foundations of Human Behavior Initiative. What makes us tick from a dollars and cents perspective? Professor Leibson, thanks for coming on The Gist. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Let's just talk about, to set our foundation, 
the fundamentals of inflation. The inflation we're seeing now has many fathers and many causes. Uh, There's a general rate of inflation. There's commodities, specifically oil. There's the pandemic, which uh, factors in when you think about lockdowns in China and the supply chain. And then there's, of course, the amount of uh, cash people have or had in their pockets from the stimulus. Am I? I'm not saying all of these are the same or weighted the same in contributing to the high rate of inflation, but they do seem to be, to me, to be the factors. Uh, Would you agree if I left anything important out? Absolutely. You've got the full list. Yeah. So in order to figure out how to cure our condition, we have to recognize what our condition is. And uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing, the tool in their arsenal, is they're raising interest rates. And this should, in fact, disincentivize some economic activity. And if the economy slows down because uh, savings are increased and there's not the push to invest, this will, as they say, lower the temperature and might decrease inflation because there won't be the situation of a lot of money chasing fewer goods. So this is why they're raising interest rates, correct? That's right. So they're going to push back on demand for various products, slow down people's willingness to borrow, to buy stuff like refrigerators, houses, etc. And that's going to push demand down and that's going to lower inflationary pressures. It seems very hard to do this while keeping unemployment low. I know the governors say they can. And I also know that the uh, Federal Reserve has now a dual mandate, which is to not just think about interest rates, but to also keep in mind uh, unemployment. Now, when you started in this profession, was the unemployment part part of their mandate? Yeah, that goes all the way back. So from, from essentially... The middle of the 20th century, they've had a very clear instruction from Congress to take account of stable prices and also full employment. And so does it, it does seem to me, and I think what people who aren't paid by the government to have a somewhat rosy outlook, what they say is this will almost inevitably lead to a rise in unemployment. It's at very low levels now, and the economy can sustain and maybe benefit for something of a rise. But is that how you see it, that these actions almost certainly will lead to at least some increase in unemployment? That's right. Unemployment's at a historically low level, not the lowest we've ever had, but close to it. And we're running so hot right now that in order to reduce the inflationary pressure, the ideal scenario would be a modest uptick in the rate of unemployment. But honestly, that's sort of the wishful thinking scenario. The more realistic scenario is maybe a bigger tick up in the rate of unemployment, maybe above 4%, maybe even 5%, maybe even 6%, that might be what we need to beat inflation out of the system. We're in a lot of uncharted territory, so there's huge debate in the profession about how much unemployment is needed to go back to the 2% target for inflation. Maybe it's the case that, I don't know, There's probably a paper on this, but maybe the combined inflation rate and unemployment rate always is within a band of, I don't know, 12 to 16. And it's just the question of, do you borrow from one to give to the other? I wouldn't think about it that way. I I do think that we've got the ability to control or influence them in a way that 
doesn't necessarily mean that when one is high, one is low. So uh, a good example would be 2019, we had low unemployment and we had low inflation. So uh, you can get, you can have your cake and eat it too when you're running policy well. Yeah, or when conditions way outside of your control are favorable. Because remember all those factors that I listed, oil and the pandemic and the supply chain and cash in the pockets from a stimulus. The great uh, economic picture of 2019 was before all of these things started going haywire, right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. Mm. So yeah, we've got a lot of things that are stressors (laughs) that would be naturally pushing the rate of inflation up, though, frankly, not naturally pushing unemployment down. The fact that we have unemployment rates that are at near historical lows is a reflection of the very aggressive monetary and fiscal policy that was initiated in 2020 and then doubled down in 2021. So in some sense, it's a bit of a shock surprise that in the midst of all of this social and economic chaos, we have such a strong labor market, despite the pandemic, uh, despite the war in Ukraine, uh, despite the supply chain snarls, the labor market is red hot. And that is because we, for various reasons, decided that we needed to come out strong in response to the pandemic shock of 2020 and aggressively pursue fiscal and monetary policy. And those aggressive policies have gotten us into this red hot labor market. Yeah, would you say beyond the labor market, even the inflation part, would you say over aggressive policies uh, past a certain point? Absolutely. I think we went too far and you know, easy to say in retrospect, it wasn't as obvious when those policies were being passed, but there were certainly voices at the time making that point, Larry Summers, Uh, is one that comes to mind. We probably went 50% beyond where we needed to go in terms of the strength of our stimulus. And I'm thinking both on the fiscal side and on the monetary side. And we especially continued that stimulus past the point where the economy was clearly firing on all pistons. And it's that pushing the economy beyond the point where we were already recovered that I think was the mistake, at least in retrospect. And again, it's easy to look back and look at the moments when we got off the rails. Yeah. So the billions in the uh, American Rescue Plan, which put a lot more money in people's pockets and maybe started having, or at that point, there were really diminishing returns in terms of the labor market as to what that extra, those extra billions were doing. That's right. And you want to differentiate the different parts of the plan. So sending checks to people that were fully employed and not economically distressed, that was the sort of thing that we shouldn't have been doing. Um, Supporting our healthcare system, that was the thing that we should be doing. Uh, Supporting people who are unemployed, Uh, back in early 2021, that was a good thing to do. So I think the problem is that we sort of put everything but the kitchen sink into the mix, and we should have been more selective, certainly in the 2021 legislation, and maybe even back in the 2020 legislation, back in March 
the CARES Act, and in December, there was a second piece of legislation. I think throughout this period, we were responding to what we hadn't done in 2009 and thinking we have to be much more aggressive. And that was right, but we went too far. So we yeah. kind of fought the last war, recognized we'd been insufficiently responsive to the crisis of 2008, the great financial crisis, Lehman, et cetera. And this time we, we vowed not to make the same mistake, but of course, by vowing not to make the same mistake, we pushed it past the point of getting it right. Yeah. You're right, because uh, with TARP and a uh, great financial crisis stimulus, in retrospect, they couldn't. It was very important to the Obama administration and Geithner that they not go over a trillion. In retrospect, I think all the economists like you said it was too little. It was a reason why the recovery took so long. You know, having that threshold of not going over a trillion, we should have done way more than a trillion. So this time we go 1.9 trillion, and it turns out maybe the number of the original a great financial crisis stimulus of you know 800 something billion would have been the appropriate. Number. Yeah, actually, by the time the dust settled. This time we went 5.2 trillion. So we would have been better off at three or four trillion. And then, of course, you had extremely aggressive monetary policy on top. So you have fiscal policy of $5.2 trillion of legislation, and you have monetary policy that was also all in. And it kept going long past the point where the economy was fully recovered. And that's how we ended up with inflation that is something we haven't experienced since, 19, since around 1980. Do you think the debate or the discussion of maybe we're going too far was functional? Um, I know Larry Summers was saying it. I bet that you take him seriously because you probably see him around the Harvard campus and he was once president there. But man, was his view discounted and not just uh, at, in Jacobin magazine, but I would say, you know, on the op-ed pages of the New York Times, for instance. And I didn't see too many others rallying to his correct point of view. So my question is, I guess what I'm perceiving is the public discourse around it and public discourse isn't great these days. But among the within the uh, forums for uh, where we should be having the most robust discussion to influence policymakers, was that going well or was there some maybe social cost, let's say, for an economist to speak up and say, guys, I think this is way too much? Yeah, there was definitely a piling on for Larry and a lot of people were very aggressively critical of the things he was saying. And I wish the conversation had been more cerebral and less emotional. Uh, there was a lot of attacks that felt kind of personal, not to me, but to Larry. Um, and I do think that we need a marketplace of ideas where everyone feels they can say what they think uh, when it comes to things like economic policy and people are listening and engaging in a serious way. And I regret that so many people essentially dismissed his war warnings that proved to be absolutely right. Indeed, if you look back, if anything, he got it wrong because he didn't foresee the degree to which inflation mm -hmm. would be so high. Yeah, not, not enough of a Cassandra, it turns yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. So do you think by now the conventional wisdom has gelled around that point of view that you just articulated, that this was, there was too much stimulus and that's a major factor in the inflation we're seeing today? Well, there's unfortunately not 
consensus that Larry had it right because there's this alternative explanation that it's supply chain problems and it's the war in Ukraine. And no doubt the war in Ukraine has contributed, but it's perfectly clear that by the end of 2021, inflation was roaring. So you can't explain inflation at the end of 2021 with the war in Ukraine, which happens in 2022. So I don't think the war in Ukraine is an appropriate explanation for us going off the rails. It explains how we went even further off the rails, but we were already way off the rails by the end of 2021. Now, the supply chain snarls, that certainly was something that I think also contributed because you could say, look, we'll run the economy super hot and get unemployment maybe down even even to 3% or even into the twos. Do you think and it's possible to have employment at levels like 2 and 3% and not to have inflation, not to have these other deleterious economic effects? Possible. It's certainly counterfactual relative to the data that we've seen. I think it's the sort of thing that one should keep in mind as a plausible scenario, and we should learn from our experiences when we get to those levels. I think this is yet another piece of data that tells us that for the U.S. economy, and different economies have different labor markets, so it's not a global rule, but for the U.S. economy, full employment probably lives somewhere between 3.5 and 4%. And if you're trying to push the unemployment rate below 4%, you should expect that you're, you're in that region in which you may end up with the stimulus producing not more jobs, but more inflation. Now, here's why that makes me despair a bit. And it is because for decades, we haven't had real middle-class wage growth. And the explanation plausible was that the la- there's still slackness, this is a term you, you economists use, in the labor market. And if you could hire someone else at the $12 uh, an hour wage, you're not going to pay the 15 But then when the labor market got so tight and as tight as it got, that's when wages started rising. And we hadn't seen another mechanism to make wages rise overall broadly. So if Middle-class wage growth is reliant on an extremely low unemployment rate, but as we've just demonstrated, an extremely low unemployment rate is both unsustainable and is likely to have some uh, deleterious reverberations. How can we ever expect to get broad middle-class wage growth? Yeah, and to be clear, I think we're on the same page. This current episode is actually hurting the inflation-adjusted wages for middle income and lower income workers. So in fact, real wages are are not going up right now. I think we have to recognize that there's structural problems that we need to address to raise wages for a huge fraction of our workforce. It's not gonna come by trying to stimulate the overall economy by mailing out checks. It's not going to come by having the monetary authority stimulate the economy by lowering the federal funds rate and buying lots of bonds. It's going to come by 
making our workers more productive and also by subsidizing their compensation. So the two things I'd point to is the terrible way in which we create an unlevel playing field. If you happen to grow up in the right community, you end up getting a lucky and wonderful education, and then you end up picking up skills, and you end up going to college and picking up more skills. If you grow up 10 miles away, you end up with very different skill sets and a very different outcome in the labor market. So I think the primary thing we need to do is recommit to traditional American values of a level playing field. And that means getting an education to every person in this country uh, so that everyone walks out of high school with that great skill set. And those who are interested go to college and don't end up with a barrier that stops them from doing that. The other critical thing that we should be doing, in my view, is expanding the earned income tax credit. So the EITC is a way of adding income to folks who have sort of drawn the short straw in life and end up with a low wage. Well, the federal government can subsidize their compensation. And I think that makes excellent sense. It encourages work and it focuses our redistribution on exactly the people that are suffering the most in our modern economy. So those are the kinds of things I think we should be thinking about, not mailing checks to uh, every American family, including uh, those with vast wealth. David Leibson is the Robert L. Goldman Professor of Economics and a faculty dean of the Lowell House who leads the Harvard University's Foundations of Human Behavior Initiative. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great talking with you, Mike. And now the spiel. It's been 17 days since the Dobbs v. Jackson women's health ruling was made official. It took minutes to respond, hours to react to the response, and a few weeks to chronicle the reaction to the response. One such article ran in the New York Times Thursday, Biden promised to stay above the fray, but Democrats want a fighter. In the Washington Post Saturday, the Democratic left is frustrated with Biden. How much could it matter? Then Sunday, two long weeks inside Biden's struggle to respond to abortion ruling. Many Democrats were dismayed by his slow-footed response, but cheered his more forceful tone and actions Friday. That article, landing on a Sunday, meant it was picked up by the networks. It was the first thing mentioned on Face the Nation. This week on Face the Nation, supporters of abortion rights push for more action from the Biden administration and Congress. And it engendered this sharp question from Meet the Press host Chuck Todd to an administration official. There is a growing group of Democrats that are frustrated, believe that the president isn't showing enough energy, isn't showing enough fight on any of these issues. The left is usually frustrated with Biden. And anyone on the left would tell you it's usually warranted. Democrats as a whole, according to a new Siena poll, want Biden to step aside in the next presidential election by a margin of more than two to one. Was there anything Biden could have done better 
when it came to abortion. Well, here's the critique from a Bernie Sanders former staffer in that Times piece, quote, the economy seems to be running out of control, fundamental rights are being stripped away, and the White House just isn't coming with anything, said Bill Neidhart, a former spokesman for Senator Bernie Sanders. Here's a quote from a current Bernie Sanders staffer. This was in the Post piece two days later. Fayez Shakir, senior advisor to Sanders, put it, show me you're willing to be a disruptor, just as we've seen the right do. Give me politics that animates the fights I care about. Then give me things I can touch, feel, and see. There is a desire to see bold fights and friction. There's an important word in that quote that I want to point out and get to later, but hold that thought while we dissect the overall sentiment. Give me politics that animate the fights I care about. There is a desire to see bold fights and friction. At first I thought, they don't want a president, they want a cable news host. And then I realized, no, they don't want a president Biden, they want a president Sanders. Of course they do. They work for Sanders. They are the left. If they wanted a president or politician of Biden's policy preferences and comportment, they could have had Joe Biden. They didn't. Sanders fought the nomination until the end, as was his right. But Joe Biden is simply not a leftist firebrand. That's not a headline. That's a background condition. If you examine the substance of the critique, you find a number of policy proposals that Biden doesn't support. Well, because he thinks they're political losers. Still, Dan Balls in the Washington Post argues, quote, to his critics on the left, he should be more willing to take on the big fights, even losing ones to put down markers. I mostly agree with Biden on this. Losing fights don't help. The markers mark you as a loser. The other actual proposals that were mentioned in all these articles and elsewhere, a carve out for allowing abortions on federal lands in states that ban them, bad idea because women and doctors would surely be arrested. Then there was the idea of an emergency declaration from the Post, quote, some progressive lawmakers began calling on the administration to declare a public health emergency, a mostly symbolic gesture that would signal how seriously the administration viewed the issue, but that would make limited difference in terms of policies or actions Biden could take. Great. At another point, it's advised that Biden get into fights just to get into fights, policies that, quote, may ultimately get struck down as a signal to voters that they're fighting for them. One expert who wanted Biden to get into more fights was Lawrence Ghostin, professor of medicine at Georgetown University and faculty director of the Institute for National and Global Health Law, quote, the tone was right. Speaking of Biden's speech on Friday, in which he talked about a 10-year-old girl who was forced to leave Ohio to get an abortion in Indiana, Professor Ghostin said the tone was right, the political symbolism was right, all of the values and deepest concerns that advocates have raised were addressed. The one thing that was missing was tangible, concrete action. Yeah, that's right. And that's what I want to talk about in that Shakir quote. Give me politics that animate the fight I care about. Give me things I can touch, feel, and see. The word touch in there strikes a note of impossibility. There simply isn't much of anything tangible that can be done. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, I actually won't absolve Biden in this. You and I both know of politicians who are very similar to Biden's ideology, who would subscribe to almost all his policy positions and not endorse any of the things that he thinks are unwise, who have his legislative philosophy, and they would all be out there raising more of a ruckus. We saw Governor Pritzker of Illinois not do anything 
tangible on guns, but he got vocal on guns. Most really good politicians like to tangle. You can bet that Bill Clinton would be out there. Safe, legal, and rare and to go, Hillary would too. Biden doesn't actually even have to throw a punch in this fight. He just has to be the guy who tells his friends, hold me back, hold me back, as he threatens the other side with everything he's going to do. Without actually evoking emergency declarations or carving out federal land proposals that will be ineffective or harmful, just drawing off some of the righteous anger, that's clearly the move. It shouldn't even have to be something that Biden is talked into. You don't need advisors on this one. You just need to be a good politician. A good politician with the right instincts would be spoiling for a fight. It doesn't seem to be that way with Biden. I mean, he just had to repeat, raped little girls are going to be forced to give birth and he makes his point. And people stop talking about, well, what about federal lands? He eventually came around, sort of, but my goodness, this isn't about fear of overreach or policy calculations. It's about a good politician who would have once had to have been held back, who would have, without being told to, who would have gotten his Irish up. A good politician would easily have done that. I don't know that we can still say that Joe Biden is a good politician. I don't even know if we can say that he's a good enough politician. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson, the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions, went the wrong way on a one-way, trying to evade police, arguing that one driver plus two Sphinx cats is clearly a high-occupancy vehicle. Still got the suspended license. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oopperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>